It is so good to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles. Uh, our passage is coming from First and Second Samuel. But we're going to go to First Samuel chapter 22 to kick it off. First Samuel 22. If you've got a device, a phone, or an iPad, you can go ESV version and you'll be able to stay with us. We're uh, in this series, about a 12-week series, uh, chronicling the life of David. A life uh, is multifaceted. So if you looked back on your own life and you were to say, hey, here's the 12 things I want to focus on, they probably wouldn't encompass your entire life, um, but they might be some particular moments that would be good for everybody to know. And that's really what we're doing here with David is uh, we're focusing on really 12 particular events or scenes or moments in his life. They don't tell the whole story, but they give us a little bit of a picture of who he was and what God was doing in his life and how he foreshadows um, the coming king thousands of years later that we would see with Jesus Christ. And so that's really one of the big features and pieces as we go through the life of David is that David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a flawed dude. And so what we can see as we go through David's life is we can see all the things that not only David did, but that God did through David and for David, but it also leads us to um, just a clear understanding of the true and better David, right? Which was, of course, was Jesus Christ. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this, uh, this whole thing that David went through as he was just kind of coming into his own. He was anointed king, but it would be years before he became king because King Saul was still on the throne. King Saul was Israel's first king, but he was just an incredibly flawed man. And at some point he disobeyed the Lord to the degree that the prophet Samuel came to him and said, hey, the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand. He's gonna give it to another person. That person was David. But it would be years before David would take the throne and because um, the, the spirit of the Lord wasn't with Saul any longer, what we're told here in the text, um, Saul just ended up behaving in some really, really uh, ungodly ways. One of the ways was that he started a manhunt uh, to try to get David, to capture David, to destroy David. Why? Well, because he knew David was his successor and that if he could eliminate David, then the throne would remain in his family. So what we've seen the last few weeks are these fr this friendship that David formed with the crown prince, the son of King Saul, a guy named Jonathan. And we just kind of looked into what it looked like for us to sort of lean into friendship, understand friendship um, a little bit better, what, what it means for us to receive friendship uh, from others, what it, what it means for us to be a loyal friend uh, to other people. We looked, looked at that last week. And we're going to just sort of extend that into what it means for us to be a community. We're going to see this morning that there was this community that gathered around David. And it reminds us a little bit of the community that God gathers us with that we, of course, call the church. And we're just going to look at some of the unique things that David uh, faced with this particular community of, of people that he was gathered with. And then, and then how that um, changes how we see this community, this church community, this just messy, ragtag group of rebels. I'm talking about all of you right now. Um, that we all gather with every Sunday. And, um, and I, I, it's funny because as, as I was, you know, studying and writing for this this week, I was re reflecting on just some of the different ways that the gathered church has, um, you know, has changed my life, has changed Melissa and I's life. 
um, thinking about all kinds of different moments um, of which we can step back and we can say, well, it, it was different because we weren't facing it alone, but we had a church family that walked through this with us. So whether it was moments of grief or, you know, celebration or encouragement, friendship, you know, ice cream, right? Like whatever it's been, um, we've seen the way the Lord has worked through this particular gathered community. I, I remember, um, speaking of ice cream, um, I remember after a particularly difficult day, I don't remember why it was so bad. It was probably because of one of you. And um, <laughs> I rem- I'm joking about that, I'm not. But, but I remember... Um, I remember it was just one of those discouraging days. And, you, you know, if you're a pastor, you have many discouraging days. If you're not a pastor, you have many discouraging days. And I remember we were just at home having a discouraging night following a discouraging day. That's usually how the order goes. And I remember there's a knock on the door and somebody was standing there holding a bag of Wits ice cream. And I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't talked to this guy at all. And um, he just said, man, he goes, I don't know what it was, but I was driving home from work. He goes, and I thought, I wonder if Ronnie's having a bad day. And I know whether he's having a bad or a good day, the way to make the day better, whatever end of that spectrum he's on, is to bring him a bag of this. So he stopped by Wits, dropped off the bag. And it was just, what a small thing, right? But there was something in that, right? In, in the sense that, you know, this is a brother in Christ. And um, there was something that prompted him to do that. I would say it was a work of the Spirit. And... Um, that ice cream helped a lot that night. You know, it helped a lot. I remember there's another time. Um, these are going to sound like small things, right? But I, but I like talking about the small things, right? Because they, they kind of give way to um, just the way that the Lord works and that he doesn't miss the details, right? It's easy to bring up a big thing, a big grandiose thing. And we got to do that. But I like the small, almost like insignificant detail things because I think they, they, they kind of move us into the heart of Jesus a little bit better. But I remember when we... I remember when we moved here um, and we were, we were renting a house just up the road and um, I remember we had this, you know, we had this big tractor trailer full of all of our stuff and, you know, we were, we were there, the, uh, we'd, we'd gotten here and we had heard that maybe there was a crew that was going to come out and help unload, uh, but they were nowhere to, they, they were not there, they were nowhere to be seen. Um, so Melissa and I, we just start unloading the truck, you know, no big deal. And, um, you know, we're like four or five hours into this and it basically looked like we hadn't taken one box out of the truck, even though we were, we were working hard. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, all these trucks pull up and these cars and these vans and um, about 20, 25 people like got out and they said, OK, we're here. And um, and so it just taken a few hours, but they got there. Right. And um, within 30 minutes. And I remember because I timed it, that whole truck had been had been Cleared, cleared out, you know, they had moved the whole thing in 30 minutes, what we had worked on for four or five hours and hadn't even put a dent in it. But, um, but it's just another picture of what gathered community can be and can do for you. And it often puts you in a really vulnerable situation. I mean, I kind of didn't like everybody seeing my stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of, it was a little vulnerable. Like, you know, I, I don't want everybody seeing my mattress. I don't know about you, you know, like, what, this is that guy, this is, this is his mattress? You know, I don't know. It just, we don't have a great mattress. It was not impressive, you know? And um, so, you know, things like that, right? But, but again, the, the, what happened in that day was interesting, right? So there were some guys there do all this heavy lifting. There were some people that helped assemble things, furniture, appliances, 
right? Depending on their gifts, other people helped organize things. And it was just an interesting way to see the way that when community steps in, when community works, when they gather the way they're supposed to gather, and you've all experienced this maybe in, in your own unique ways, we really see the hand of God like working tangibly. And it makes our lives better. It changes things for us. And that's what we see here today when we learn a little bit about the community that gathered around David in his moments of need. And again, what we're going to finish with is how the Lord calls us this, to do the same as his church. So we're going to start here in 1 Samuel 22. Just read the first couple of verses. And then I'm going to explain those. And then we're going to move to a passage in 2 Samuel 23. And then un unpack that a little bit. And then do some observations on this. But here's 1 Samuel 22. It said, uh, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now David is coming out of just a just a whole thing going on with his battles with the Philistines and, and trying, to, trying to come to an agreement with the Philistines that did not go well. And here he is coming now, fleeing once again uh, for his life, escaping to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, it says they went down there to him. And then verse two says, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became captain over them and there was with him about 400 men. So we're going to stop there um, because what we see as David is, is leading into the time that he was going to become king officially, he had some years where he hadn't quite gotten there yet and he was on the run. King Saul is on a manhunt for David. And he escapes to this cave of Adullam. And it, it's here that we read not, not only his family comes to him, but another community of people gather to him as well. We read in verse 2, it says that everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul, interesting the way they're described, right? Gathered to him. And it's interesting the kind of people that are described here. 400 people but they're all in various stages of all kinds of emotional and physical and mental stress, what we see. And they all came to David to be under his care, to be under his command. And again, this is where this, this battalion of David's mighty men would, would come out of, right? These, these particular uh, kind of men that would be formed David's inner circle of his army. They came out of this original 400 people that we see gathering around David. Now there's something peculiar in this that I, that I really don't want us to miss. There's something peculiar about the character of God in the way that he helps David in this season. We, we've seen it in the way that he brings David, this, this friend, Jonathan, right? Who loved, it says he loved David as his own soul. But we see now the Lord providing David with a group of people, a community that was going to help him in his next stage of this journey that he's on trying to escape Saul. And what's interesting is that he doesn't surround him with the most well-adjusted people in Israel, right? To be honest, everyone in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul, it sounds a lot like a church if, if, we're, you know, if we want to break it down. And we, we kind of are. We are breaking it down, right? Um, there is no doubt that God is training and testing David in these times, right? Preparing him to be king. But here's what's so beautiful about that is that he's not leaving him alone in the process. Yes, he is teaching him 
not to place all his trust in an army for all of his refuge and strength. David would write about that. While at the same time, he provides him with the encouragement he needs through a community that's willing to walk with him. And what, it, what that's a beautiful picture of, what it reminds us of is the way that God operates, right? God puts us in a company of people that are a lot like us. They're people who are stressed and in debt and bitter in soul, we're told, right? People who are, people who are facing life in the middle of life's difficulties, in the middle of life's struggles, and we don't have an answer for this. Not everything is so clear cut, you know? Not everything is black and white. Things happen. How do we face this? And the problem is, is that if I'm in a season where I'm facing this, I feel alone. Because that's what stress does to a person. That's what distress does to a person. That's somebody who is bitter in soul and in debt and facing all kinds of physical and mental things. That's what it feels like. It feels isolating. It feels like I'm standing on an island and there's nobody around me. And that's what David felt like. So it's interesting that God brought him people that could understand the place that he was in. God likes to use preposterous situations and preposterous people to reveal his promises and purposes to us. And that's what we see here with David. God wasn't just leaving him alone. And he wasn't just sending him a bunch of people that would just help him forget all the stuff he was going through. But he surrounds him with this group of people that were facing many of the same things that he was facing. If we jump further into the story here in uh, chapter 22, we would see that eventually the, this, group of the, the, this, this group grows from 400 to 600 strong and they, they eventually find some safety in the wilderness as they're on the, as they're on the chase from King Saul. Now, King Saul, we would read, would, would, uh, would stop the chase, he would hit pause uh, on the search, but then eventually just kind of go right back to it return to his pursuit. Somehow the Lord keeps David and this growing community hidden from Saul and out of harm's way. It's interesting reflecting on this to think about the harmful things in your life, the harmful things that, that we are afraid of that just relentlessly pursue us, right? That just never seem to, to let us go never seem to relinquish us from their grip. I mean, it can be so many different things. It, it can be people who, who have wounded us. It can be people who have damaged us. It can be addictions that we, just, we can't shake. Just things that just keep attacking us, we feel like, and we just we can't get them off our back. It can be horrible trauma from the past or the present that just won't release us, that we can't find any resolution for. They could be somebody that damaged us so bad, but we can't find, we can't get any justice. And we just wonder, Lord, I know you say you're there, but man, it feels, feels lonely. It feels very alone. David wrote this in Psalm 143, verse 3. He talks about this, this kind of loneliness, this kind of isolation that we go through. He said, for the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in dark, darkness like those long dead. 
Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Like, do you hear what it's like to be stuck in a world that makes no sense? You don't, just, you don't get to just quote a Bible verse and everything's just peachy. That's the place that David is in. That is the place that you are in. So often. Some of you guys are so deeply in that place right now. It feels like the soil is like up to your chin. That's the place David is in. And it's the place that God sees David in. And it's the moment where God says, I got some people for you. I got some people that can understand who you are, what you're facing, what you're going through. And guess what? They're going to support you. They're going to love you. They're going to be loyal to you. David's story reminds us that although we have significant days of darkness that face us and threaten to overpower us, and there's good reason to be concerned in those moments, right? We know that they are no match for the mind, the hand, the heart, and the grace of God. Listen, it's not that Saul couldn't overcome David. It's that Saul couldn't overcome God who was with David. That's the big key here. One of the ways God was with David was through the community that gathered around him. That's how God is with us, right? As we think about gathered church community. How is God with you in a tangible way? He's with you through the people that he is with. So that when you are in a place that feels so isolated and alone, they will be with you and you will experience the withness of God. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 23. Because then we're going to read a story about a time when David's mighty men, which is what some of these men in this group became, this ragtag community, what it looked like for them to, to be that community, to sacrifice everything. So this is a chapter that talks about David's mighty men and, and it, it's sort of a reflection back to all the men that he had and some of the roles that they played um, during his reign. And so we're given this story, picking up in verse 13, about this particular moment um, that happened with them and David. And it says in 2 Samuel 23, 13, and three of the 30 chief men, I'm not given their names, went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, right? So we just, we're still, we're still in the cave. Um, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink 
from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Verse 16, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So these mighty men that we read about in 2 Samuel 23, what they, who they are, what they're telling us about are, are David's, these are David's men of valor. These are like his, um, like his secret service or maybe like his, like his Navy SEALs, right? They were the best of the best. Um, they're David's inner circle. And we read this story about the time when he was on the run from King Saul and he expresses his longing, it says, for water from the well of Bethlehem. Now, this would have been something so meaningful to David, right? Something familiar, something he enjoyed growing up in that region from a time that maybe brought back good memories. He, he's nostalgic. If I, if, if I could only just... I'm thinking and dreaming about the old days when life was simpler. If I could just get a, just get a, just a taste of that cool Bethlehem well water. And he's just longing. You know, he's a human being, right? He wants something that brings back a, a simpler time in his life. And we see that three of his mighty men, what they do is they, they hear David. They hear that longing. They hear that desire, that simple, nostalgic desire of David's heart. They break through the camp in Bethlehem and they bring some of that, that beautiful Bethlehem water that David is longing for. And if you, you know, if we're not so quick just to hurry, and if we let it, you know, it can, it's such a tender moment, it can almost bring tears to your eyes, you know? When you think about what they did, this act of love and care and loyalty that David's men have for him in this moment. You know, it's so endearing. It's so endearing. They were willing to risk their lives to fetch this brother a drink of water. And it shows this, this deep loyalty that they have for him. But then the way David responds is super interesting, isn't it? He pours the water out before the Lord, like an offering. He pours it out because that water represents more than just him having a refreshing and nostalgic drink of water. He pours the water out. By the way, he wasn't rejecting their, their kindness. That's not what's going on here. He was repaying their loyalty with love. In other words, David felt like enjoying the water would be minimizing the sacrifice they made. When he pours out that water before the Lord, it's symbolic almost of like pouring out their blood before the Lord. This is the sacrifice they had made. That water may have never gotten back to David, but their blood may have because they were willing to risk everything. And that's what this really was. It wasn't a sacrifice for a, a cold, nostalgic drink of water. It was a sacrifice of blood. David thought this would be making light of what they did. He was matching their level of loyalty with an equal measure of love. 
And if we can, if we can back up here, we, we can see the way that uh, in the same way a, a gathered community rallies around each other and serves one another in these deeply sacrificial, deeply intentional ways. I'm gonna come out of myself. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna sacrifice for you. I'm gonna make you, I'm gonna make your life more important than my life in this moment. As we dive more deeply into David's life, we're gonna see the kind of trouble that he faced. And he faced a lot of trouble from his battles with the Philistine army to all of these, the situations that happened with, due to his personal sins that were egregious, crazy. We're going to get into some of those. Not super looking forward to those sermons. Um, all the way to uh, close friends and close family members who he experienced insane levels of betrayal from. What we see is that at different times in his life, this faithful community that surrounded him was how God showed his enduring faithfulness to David. It's such a beautiful picture for us when we consider the people that at our, who are sitting at our right and left elbows right now. We don't want to minimize the impact. We don't want to minimize the depth of what exists in this room when it comes to thinking about the community that God gives us that is faithful to us so that we experience the faithfulness of God. So here's how I want to finish our time. I want to ask this question, try to answer it. What do we learn about this gathered community that surrounded David that we can apply to our gathered church community? What can we learn from this? How can we be inspired and motivated from this? The first thing is this. We learn excuse me, that the gifts of a gathered community become opportunities to serve and encourage others. So the gifts you all have, and you got gifts, they become the occasion and the opportunity to serve another person, to serve a group of people, to encourage another person. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Go all the way to the New Testament here, 1 Corinthians and let's read about what Paul said when it comes to all the different ways the church is gifted. Because sometimes we can kind of go, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, what do I have? Um, I don't have many gifts. You know, we can kind of pare it down a little too simplistically. You know, Ronnie, I don't preach. I don't sing. So I guess I don't have anything to offer. You mean that thing we do for like an hour every Sunday morning? You know, like we do more than that. We have more than that to do, right? But look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, picking up in 14. He, he says, look, the, bo the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would... Be the sense of smell, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where, member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And it goes on to say in 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. It goes on to say that the church, everybody has a, a part of the church because the church is described as a body. So when we use the words gathered community, what we're really describing is what Paul's talking about here, which is the body, the body of Christ, right? And a body has all these different parts and each of us have a particular kind of role within the kind of parts that God has blessed us with to bless others with. So it's just so easy to step back and di- like just discount and just say, man, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the most talented person. You know, I'm not the most exceptional person. I don't look in the mirror and go, wow, here we go. You know, like I'm not one of those guys. I'm not one of those gals. But yet Paul is saying here, no, no, you, you all have an indispensable part to play in the life of the church because you're part of the body. Everybody has a place. Everybody has a role to play. If you feel like you don't bring anything to table, then, well, I guess Paul is straight up lying to us, but we don't believe Paul is lying to us. We believe that there is a place and there is a part that you have to play. And in fact, many times what Paul is trying to say here is that those, those roles and those parts that people have to play that are really unnoticeable are some of the most important things, right? So the whole idea is here is that as we serve one another in this community with the gifts we've been given, it's not the gifts that are most visible that are typically the most important. Um, it's, it's typically the ones that we can't see. It's typically the ways that you serve other people that nobody else is ever gonna know about that is gonna be the biggest impact on the body of Christ. Nobody knew about that ice cream story till I told you all about it. I didn't give you his name. You know what I mean? No, nobody knew that. That was him. That was a brother that had the, a gift of generosity. He had a gift of generosity. It wasn't the only time that ever happened. But he had a gift of generosity. And part of having a gift of generosity is, is imagining the ways that you can bless others with what you've been given. That's just one example. And he exercised that gift that night. He was sensitive to it. He knew he had that gift. He used that gift. So we learn that the gifts of a gathered community become occasions to serve and, and encourage others. So you need to look at what, who you are, the gifts God has given you, and say, hey, how can, I, how can I bless somebody else? How can I encourage somebody else the way David was encouraged by those mighty men with that, with that, um, that Bethlehem water? Secondly, we learn that our collective power as a gathered community can create a safe place for others, our collective power. Now, I'm going to tell you what I mean by collective power, but imagine if substance was a place where, listen, everyone who was in distress, who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered together to find the commonality and the unity that God has given us to experience. What if? Because here's the thing, the Holy Spirit who exists in all of our hearts, that's the power. That's the collective power. He has the power to create that kind of a safe community where you come in and you say, I am bitter in soul today. And we say, get closer, sister. Let's talk about that. Let's pray about that. Here's three things I'm going to do to help you with that. Would those things help you? That's the kind of intentionality. That's the kind of power that exists because the spirit has made it so. 
He's given us that power inside to extend to others. It ain't going to be perfect. And things are going to get missed. And when it's not, that's where repentance, that's where forgiveness comes in. Three, we learn that gathered community provides opportunity to practice hospitality. Gospel hospitality. By the way, this is... This is, hospitality is, is probably, it's bigger than how we probably kind of shrink our definition of it to be. It's, it's not just about inviting someone over to dinner at your house. And yes, invite somebody over to dinner at your house. That is hospitality. It's not merely that. Uh, in the words of uh, uh, Timothy Paul Jones, he's a, he's a professor at Southern Seminary. He says, New Testament hospitality is to pass the peace, that thing we just did, day by day in such a way that strangers are transformed into family. Hospitality is radical welcome coupled with Christ-like generosity. Man, that's such a beautiful definition, isn't it? To summarize Timothy Paul Jones, because I'm smarter than him, um, I'm kidding. Hospitality, it's, this is what, it's seeing others the way God has created them. So you're not merely looking past people. You're not merely looking through people. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. You're getting involved to the degree that you know the person and you get a sense of the way that God has made them. You learn their story. You form a spiritual bond that carries them through life as they carry you, as they carry you. That's gospel hospitality. It's not just merely creating an event. It's not just merely making a meal, but it is those things as well, right? And then fourth, finally, we learn that a gathered church community is how God changes a community. Isn't that, a, isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting? Church community is how God changes a community. Um, I heard this story from this pastor, and he was talking about how he went to... Um, do you remember the name of the country, babe? They didn't say. We heard a story about a pastor who went, he was visiting another country. I think it was a third world country, but um, he was visiting a, a Christian bookstore there. And it was, a, it was a country with a government that wouldn't have been very um, uh, free with, with uh, you know, gospel proclamation. But, you know, there, there was some measure of freedom there, but they, they had to really be careful. Um, and he said he went to the bookstore and he said he found all these great books by all these good authors. And he said he, 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 he noticed that something was strange. And, um, and he had a talk with the person that was there in the bookstore with him. And he said, hey, I feel like there's something missing here. What, like, what's missing? I, we see good titles, but I, I'm seeing all these different topics represented. He goes, and the guy goes, what's missing is, is any books about the church. And he goes, Really? And he goes, why is that? Why do they allow a book by John Piper and Tim Keller and, you know, again, these good books, that, you know, books that we have in our, in our, on our shelves. But why do they not allow any books focusing on the church, the gathered community? And this is what the guy said. He said, Christians are not a threat if they remain individualized. That's so interesting, isn't it? They this is what he said. They become a threat when they organize. They become a threat when their allegiance is to a different king. That's big. The gathered church is how God changes a community. Why? Because they, they stop 
They stop individuality. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you lose your identity in the unique way God's gifted you. That's not what we're talking about. It means that those things have to form a collective unit. All those uniquenesses and those sort of those individual ways that God has formed you and, and made you the person that you are, it's not meant to just kind of be on an island in isolation. It's meant to form a collective. That's what he's saying. And when that happens, a community becomes radically altered. It becomes changed. This community becomes changed, right? They become a threat when they organize, when their allegiance is too different. When we say threat, we, don't, we mean a threat to the established order of things. That's what we mean by threat. What it means is that we don't have to say things like, it is what it is. It means that we don't have to say things like, well, that ain't ever going to change. Because our collective gifts, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that have drawn us together as a gathered community, means that things don't just have to be the way they are. It means that we can make change. We can enact change. We can break down some of the systems that keep people down. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within the gathered community that we have to do that. We can change a community for good. Why can we do that? Why does substance have the ability to change the community of Ashland for good? Because Jesus is at the center of it. And that's how we're going to end. Because Jesus is at the center of it. Because Jesus is at the center of a true gathered community that has the Holy Spirit empowering its members who are uniquely gifted in all these ways to get out there and first, off, first and foremost serve their fellow church members but then allow that level of generosity and responsiveness and care to extend outside the walls of the church building. So millions of people are going to tune in to watch the Super Bowl today. You guys are just hoping I finish in time so that that can happen. And what we're gonna see in Las Vegas, by the way, is not just a football game. You are not seeing a football game in Vegas. You are seeing a football community. You're seeing a gathered football community in Las Vegas. Thousands of people gathered in a stadium together wearing the jersey that represents their team and rallying behind the quarterback of that team that they hope will emerge victorious. Ronnie, that's the least fun explanation of football I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. What, but here's the reality. One, one group of people is going to share in the joy of victory. Another group is what? The agony of, of defeat, right? It's inevitable. Um, but each of those teams has a leader, don't they? Each one of those football teams has a leader that everyone is looking to. Everybody on the team is important and vital. But each team has a leader that they're looking to. If you were a Patriots fan during their winning years, you looked to Tom Brady, Right To bring the Patriots home. Bring it home, Tom. If you're a 49ers fan today, you're looking to Brock Purdy to bring it home. I had to Google that. <laughs> if you're a Chiefs fan, you're, you're looking to Taylor Swift to, <laughs> to bring it on home. If only half of my friends could listen to this sermon, it'd be the best dig I got into them for months now. Um, but here's what's interesting is David's community 
They look to him as their commander to bring them home. And here's where we tie it all together. We look to Jesus. We are a gathered community that's not looking to me, not looking to Scott, not looking to Mark. We are looking to Jesus to bring us home. We are looking to Jesus. We have much more than a quarterback, much more than a commander of some ragtag army. Those are important things. But we have Jesus. Jesus gave his life. He poured his blood out so that you might have water to drink. Do you see the metaphor there? Jesus pouring out his blood so that you might have living water to drink. Jesus gave his life so that a community could be formed who would give their life to you, sacrifice their lives for you like the way he has sacrificed his life for us. This is a community that will be so imperfect. And you have to say that, but it's a community who has a perfect leader, right? Unlike David's group, unlike the 49ers, unlike the Chiefs, because we're going to suffer some losses. We're going to face some monumental challenges, but we will look to Jesus to bring us home because he will complete in us what he started. This is what we celebrate today when we celebrate communion, the pouring out of Jesus' blood as an offering to the Father so that we might have life eternal. We need him to make that sacrifice. Hey, if you are somebody that's just been coming to church, maybe you've been coming here for years, maybe you were born in the church, maybe you went to other churches, maybe you love this community, maybe, you, maybe you're here because you like this community. Man, this feels safe. I like the people I meet. We share some commonality. That's great. And it is great. It's awesome. But it's not what makes you right with God. Just showing up to this ragtag warehouse does not make you right with God. And so as we take communion, something way deeper has happened in the lives of those who take it. They're going to eat a little morsel of bread. They're going to drink a little cup of grape juice. It's what it symbolizes. It's what it represents. It represents the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you are somebody that says, you know, I don't know that I've come to that place. I don't know that I've repented of my sin. Or maybe, maybe you've confessed your sin, but you've never turned away from your sin. Maybe you've, maybe you've lived this life of, of sort of this performative like Christianity where you just, more, you just do a lot of great things. You know, you, you, you live life as one of the good guys, but your heart has never been changed, transformed to a love for a risen savior named Jesus. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that if that's you and you've not welcomed Jesus into your life through the repentance of your sin and believing and trusting in his work on the cross, I would ask you just to hold off on this because it doesn't have any context for you. That's not us trying to push you back. It's just us encouraging you to take the step that the table then would welcome you to partake of. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to go before the Lord and humble yourself. 
And the rest of us get the same opportunity. Maybe not for salvation if we've already been saved, but to maybe do some business with the Lord. So we prayed a prayer of confession. It was a really good prayer. But this is another way for us to take an opportunity, like scripture tells us, to go before the Lord, confess our sins, knowing he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from unrighteousness, so that we can come up and we can take this bread and we can drink this cup with a clear conscience. And if the Lord surfaces anything in your life, if he says, you know what, I should go to this person that I've that I'm struggling with relationally, or I need to confess this sin that has been dragging me down, or if I'm just sad, if life has just been, just been pulling at me and tugging at me and bringing me down, you can bring all those things to Jesus. And when you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you can remember that he came for you. He came to make it so that someday all these things would be the former things. And you have life in eternity with him. Let me pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this church, this gathered community. It's, it, we mess up a lot. We don't get it all right. We miss so many things. We, um, we're like David. Uh, we're sinful. Um, we don't live as you have commanded us to live, Jesus. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that. Um, the only reason why we're worthy to come to the table is because of Jesus. So we acknowledge that, Lord. We want to be nourished again spiritually as we are reminded once again that we have life because you gave us your life. And Lord, we also want to extend that life to the community that surrounds us. We want to use our gifts. We want, to, we want to listen to your word. We want to act out of the power that exists in this room because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So Lord, convict our hearts of that. Let us not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And Lord, for those who have never come to you in repentance and receive forgiveness for their sin, who've never been changed, who've never had their heart radically altered so that they might love you and find joy and peace in you. Lord, I pray that they would come before you now and that you would cast a light on their sin so that might, they might repent to you and that you'd bring them into this new relationship with you where you are their God and their king and their friend. Lord, would you do that for somebody or many people right now that are feeling convicted and that want their lives to change? Would you bring them to that place, Lord? You're not looking for all the right words to be said. You're looking for a heart that comes before you in humility and just says, God, just help me, forgive me. Let me be authentically part of this church community so that I can serve you and be served through the gifts and the hearts of everybody surrounding me. So if that's you, we pray that you would consider these things and let the Lord work in your heart this morning. Lord, as we take these elements, 
as we obey you, as you taught us to do. I pray that you'd strengthen us in our weakness. You would lift us up, Lord, so that we have eyes to see you, to trust you, to believe you, and to hope in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.